Sunday saw another 343 confirmed cases of COVID. 335 were locally infected and eight were retroactively added to previous day's tallies. Sunday's death toll remained high at 36 deaths. Worthy of note is 75 of Sunday's confirmed cases were from Miaoli, of which 65 were belonging to the Qingyuan Electronics Cluster. That's higher than Taipei's 64 confirmed cases. With the Dragon Boat Festival long weekend approaching, the government is calling on the public not to go back to their hometowns this year. After we made appeals in the past two days, some people have already refunded their tickets. During the period of the Dragon Boat Festival holiday between June 11th and June 14th, the current capacity of TRA trains is less than 10% a day. As for the high-speed rail, the number of passengers on the 11th and 14th is still a bit high. It's really unnecessary. In this year's Dragon Boat Festival, for the sake of yourself and your family, I hope everyone can stay put and not move around. When the epidemic is so severe, I call for my compatriots to try not to travel during the Dragon Boat Festival. The less you move, the better the protection, and this is the best way to spend the holiday. We can use video calls and phone calls to stay in touch. Data shows that for the Dragon Boat Festival holiday, there are still 33,000 reserved tickets on the TRA and 56,000 reserved tickets on the HSR. With another 12,000 tickets sold for long-haul buses, it means there will be at least 100,000 people traveling at the end of the week. In a recent statement from the White House, the U.S. pledged to share vaccines with the rest of the world, including Taiwan. Following the news release, three U.S. senators flew into Taipei Sunday morning and stayed for just three hours. In their brief visit, the senators announced that the U.S. would donate 750,000 doses of vaccines to Taiwan through the international vaccine platform COVAX. President Tsai thanked the three senators for their efforts in coordinating this donation and emphasized that Taiwan will forever remember the U.S.'s support. On Sunday morning, President Tsai Ing-wen received U.S. Senators Tammy Duckworth, Dan Sullivan and Christopher Coons. Pleasantries were exchanged between the president and the three senators upon their arrival. Along with their visit comes good news for Taiwan. I am pleased to say that Taiwan will be receiving 750,000 doses of the vaccine as part of the first tranche of doses. It was critical to the United States that Taiwan be included in the first group to receive vaccines because we recognize your urgent need and we value this partnership. Over the years, Taiwan-U.S. relations have flourished in the spirit of real friends, real progress. You three senators have played a critical role, and I know you have a keen appreciation for our continuously deepening partnership. On June 3rd, the Biden administration announced that the U.S. will donate 80 million doses of vaccines globally by the end of June. Of the first batch of the 25 million doses, some 7 million will go to Asia, including Taiwan. Although the vaccines are yet to be distributed through COVAX, the president expressed her gratitude still for the news brought by the senators.
We are extremely grateful to the Biden administration for extending a helping hand and including Taiwan in the first round of its international vaccine sharing plan. I would like to thank the three senators with us here today for their efforts in coordinating this donation, which comes at such a critical time for us. We will forever remember your support. And it also reflects our gratitude to Taiwan's support for the American people in our time of need. In the early days of the pandemic, Taiwan came to our aid with supplies of PPE and other donations that helped to save American lives. And on behalf of the American people, we want to thank you for that. This is yet another example of how democracies work together to help one another. During the Central Epidemic Command Center's daily press conference, CECC Commander Chen Shizhong also flashed a placard conveying the friendship between Taiwan and the U.S. and the Thai administration's gratitude for the vaccine donation. Though the U.S. Center's visit was only a brief three hours, it was long enough to showcase the true progress in Taiwan-U.S. relations. With more and more people working and learning remotely, the amount of screen time in people's daily lives has increased overall. Optometrists are warning that spending too much time staring at screens can damage the eyes. They point out that exposure to too much blue light from electronics can be particularly harmful. If you find it hard to cut down on screen time, there are various products on the market which may help reduce its impact. Screen, students and teacher are in a class online. Meanwhile, mom and dad are concentrating on work meetings on their laptops and phones. Spending longer periods staring at screens is already impacting our eye health. The blue light is very strong now. When it shines in, it goes straight to the macula lutea at the back and causes irreversible damage. Staring too long at electronic screens has more risks than just short-sightedness. You really concentrate and stare at the screen. If you spend a long time like that, of course it has an even greater impact. What we call blue light has a wavelength of about 500. Normal UV light that we experience outside is about 400. We must shorten the length of time in class and look at things for shorter periods. Optometrists are urging the public to take longer breaks and preference computer screens over phones. Blue light is on the visible spectrum, but has a wavelength of 380 to 500 nanometers, longer than most visible light. You can hardly see anything looking at the blue light refracted from these blue light glasses. But this machine makes it obvious. Under a blue light, the difference between the filter lens and the normal lens is clear. There are lots of products that filter blue light on the market. From the popular blue light glasses to skins for your phone screen and visors to put over your computer or removable anti-dazzle screens. However, there are currently no regulations governing the standards required to advertise a product as filtering blue light. Consumers are urged to shop carefully. Heavy rain warnings were issued early Sunday morning in 12 cities and counties south of Miaoli. A lingering weather front, together with intensified southwesterly winds, led to non-stop heavy downpours throughout the night in Tainan, Kaohsiung and Pingdong. The Central Weather Bureau said the rainfall would taper off Sunday evening. 
Under an overcast sky, rain began to fall. Northern Taiwan had its share of torrential rain Friday. Even though the rain had tapered off in Taipei, central and southern Taiwan got their share of rain thanks to the lingering stationary front. This compact plum rain front was carried by a strong southwesterly wind, resulting in small to medium-sized intense convection and giving rise to thunders and strong gusts. Tainan, Kaohsiung and Pingdong got plummeled from night to day, receiving an abundance of rain. The CWB sent out a total of seven cell broadcasts from yesterday until now. In addition to reminding people that the Zhanghua area would receive short spurts of heavy rainfall yesterday afternoon, we also sent out six broadcasts to people from Tainan to Pingdong. These short spurts of heavy rainfall are likely to cause localized heavy rains or downpours, and the rainfall accumulation can be very considerable in a very short time, which will lead to some flooding. This wave of precipitation was concentrated in southern Taiwan. From midnight Saturday to Sunday morning, the top six locations of rain accumulation were all in the south, from Pingdong to Tainan. From now until this evening, we can see that the rainfall in the southern region will ease a little bit, but it doesn't mean that it will stop completely. There will gradually be some gaps during the time of rain. Like I mentioned earlier, after the front moves slightly northward tomorrow, there may still be some scattered rainfall in the southern region, and there may be localized rainfall in other regions. There's still the possibility of localized heavy rainfall in the southern region. This weather front is expected to leave the island on Tuesday, but under the influence of warm and humid air carried over by the southerly wind, the southern and eastern regions may still see precipitation. Other regions should watch out for afternoon thundershowers. The continued rainfall has also spelled relief for the nation's reservoirs, which took in 170 million tons of water over the past week. On Sunday morning, Economic Minister Wang Meihua delivered some good news via social media. Today, as the commander of the Central Drought Response Center, I announced that the red alert water rationing measures in Miaoli, Taichung, and northern Zhanghua will be lifted from now on. Thank you for your hard work. The recent rainfall, coupled with our previous anti-drought measures, which included using groundwater, construction water, and underground stream, will provide sufficient water supply to the end of July, according to the calculations of the Water Resources Agency. The Water Resources Agency estimates that storage capacity at Feichui Reservoir, which supplies Taipei and New Taipei, went from 70 to 81 percent over the weekend. Li Yutan, which supplies the central region, is now looking at 17 percent capacity, up from 13.3 percent last week. Miao Li was hit hard by the drought before the rain arrived, and now Mingde Reservoir has increased to 40 percent capacity, and Yonghe-shan reservoir is at 13 percent capacity. Despite the intake, most reservoirs are still far from being replenished, and Minister Wang is asking the public to continue to conserve water. Earlier this year, the high rents at one of Taipei's newest social housing projects raised eyebrows and captured much media attention. Yet even with the sky-high prices, applications for a unit still flooded in, making it extremely difficult to get one. 
this anomaly came about because of Taiwan's unusual social housing policies. Unlike many countries in the world, Taiwan allows up to 70 percent of a social housing project to be rented out to non-disadvantaged groups. Why is this allowed and what problems does it present for the fight against homelessness? Our Sunday special report investigates. Mr. Tsai has taken the day off work to come to Taipei's Datong district office. He's here to see if he's gotten lucky in the social housing lottery. As a Taipei resident, Mr. Tsai was able to apply for a studio at the Minglun Social Housing Project. He was up against 1,157 other applicants, meaning the odds of winning were less than 5%. In the end, luck wasn't on his side. He wasn't the only one disappointed by the outcome of the raffle. The Minglun Social Housing Project is located on Section 3 of Chenda Road in Taipei, near the Yuanshan MRT station and the Taipei Expo Park. Completed in November of 2020, the complex is 380 units up for rent. Just 35% of them are reserved for low-income households, people with disabilities, and other disadvantaged groups. The remaining 65% can be rented out to people in one of three categories. Taipei residents, neighborhood residents, and students and workers in Taipei whose household registration is elsewhere. In total, about 3,600 applications were filed for units at the Minglun Social Housing Project, meaning the odds of scoring a unit were just 1 in 10. Even so, those odds were good, compared with a raffle in 2019 for a public housing project near Xingtian Temple MRT station. The chance of getting a unit there was just 1.7 out of 100. Of course, that was also because there were fewer units at the Xingtian Temple project and because it's better located. But generally speaking, there aren't enough social housing units in Taipei to meet demand. You may have heard talk about public housing, youth housing, or affordable housing. All these words actually refer to different kinds of social housing. A narrow definition of social housing would be what we're discussing now, housing that is only for rent and not for sale. But more than that, it's housing that's let out to people at affordable prices. The concept of social housing can be traced back to late 19th century Europe. Rapid urbanization resulted in a shortage of housing that left many middle- and low-income households unable to afford a home, feeding social tension. After many years of calls for reform, governments started stepping into the markets to address the housing shortfall. These first social housing projects were all rental units, with no option to purchase them. Over in Taiwan, early social housing policies focused on building houses to sell. But this mode of government housing left out many disadvantaged households. It wasn't until 2010 that Taiwan truly embraced the concept of social housing for rent. In 2011, the first version of the Housing Act was passed. That was the moment social housing began to be enshrined in our laws. 
Social housing had a late start in Taiwan, and unlike in other countries, its main target demographic at the beginning was not disadvantaged groups. Today, Taiwanese law requires a minimum of 30% of social housing units to be reserved for disadvantaged households. In most localities, the maximum 70% of remaining units is let out to non-disadvantaged households. The only income restriction for this latter group is that their annual income must be below the locality's median. Abroad, they might have more stringent criteria because when housing projects are built, the main goal is to help those who most need it. So Taiwan's rules, which allow anyone below the 50th percentile mark to move in, are extremely unusual. In Japan's housing projects, residents must have an annual income below the 25th percentile. Why are the rules in Taiwan so lax? Experts say the main factors at play are Taiwan's exorbitant housing prices and the so-called black market for rentals. Many people can't afford to rent a place or buy their own home. They might struggle to regularly make rent on the private market, but they don't have an income low enough to be considered a medium or low-income household. So their only option is social housing. People who fall in this category are often called the sandwich generation. It's this group that the lax criteria is supposed to benefit. But these loose policies have created another problem. The more people eligible for social housing, the lower the chance of actually winning a unit. This is Mika, who works as a secretary at a social welfare foundation. She's applied for social housing four times and came up empty-handed all four times. I started applying two years ago for the project in Wanhua. Then I registered for the ones in Shanchong and in Nangang, and most recently for the Mingrun social housing project. I didn't get any of them. It's so hard to get one. I think you might have a better chance at winning the lotto. The government says it wants to help both disadvantaged groups and young middle-income households. But the problem is that there simply aren't enough social housing units. Nationwide, only 17,000 units have been built so far, comprising just 0.19% of the housing stock. In Japan, social housing makes up for 6% of the housing stock. In the Netherlands, 30% of all residences are social housing. In Amsterdam, the proportion is as high as 45 or 46 percent. Almost half of the city is social housing. To cope with the shortage of social housing, an expert suggests limiting eligibility for units. The point of building social housing is to help those who really need it. Single-parent households and people with disabilities should be the number one priority. We're building so little and after so much ado that units end up being allocated to people who can afford to rent on the private market. That is not fair. The expert says disadvantaged groups should be the priority. He says that building units for the sandwich generation can wait until there are more units available and until the social housing system is well established. But the government is reluctant to tighten criteria, saying there's a reason for allowing a wide range of applicants. The law says that at least 30% must be reserved for disadvantaged groups, but the proportion we're actually reserving for them is more like 40%. We wouldn't want for there to be a law that requires a very high ratio. That could trigger another round of protests. People might say, oof, they're building a housing project near your house and it's all for disadvantaged people. What's stipulated in the law is quite reasonable, because in practice we're giving a chance for more people to move in. 
The government says that a mixed model for social housing prevents the projects from becoming stigmatized by the public. But in order for social housing to fulfill their purpose, more units need to be built. So far, Taipei has built the most social housing of any city or county. Ahead of the 2014 local elections, Taipei Mayor Ke Wenzhe said his administration would build 50,000 units to make up 5 percent of the city's housing stock. It's a policy he's pushed to implement while in office. But during a city council session in January 2021, in Ke's second term, the mayor said the target of 50,000 units was unlikely to be reached. We were very naive to think we'd be able to build 50,000 units in eight years. When we got down to it, we realized it's really not that easy. You can't just draw a budget and wait for the houses to materialize. The mayor said Taipei would get 20,000 new units at most during his tenure. In 2016, President Tsai Ing-wen also made an ambitious commitment to build 200,000 social housing units in eight years. The first phase of the project aimed to create 40,000 units by 2020. According to the Construction and Planning Agency, the first phase of the project has been launched, but 20,000 of the units are still under construction.